you're doing awesome. Like by even attempting to go down this path, like you are doing awesome. Like you're being so much more thoughtful and intentional with your money. Welcome to the Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, happy holidays, and welcome back to another episode of the Fi Show. Well, let's check in with our co-host, Justin. What's up, man? I'm making my last journey of the year, heading down to Mississippi for Christmas. Yep, flying down on Christmas Eve because it saved me so much money, and I'm still going to get to spend a full week. And how about you, Cody? Well, there's nothing better than spending the holiday time with family and loved ones, Justin. But first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. One of the best ways to protect your family is with term life insurance. Even though we don't like to think about it, it's important to have financial protection in case the unexpected happens. Bestow is an awesome and reputable life insurance partner of ours that makes this process simple and easy. They use data to remove doctor visits and paperwork involved with the traditional life insurance process. And you can apply from anywhere in just minutes. You don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops to determine your eligibility. You'll receive an approval response right away. It literally took me less than one minute to get my estimated quote, and you can go do the same. Get your free and convenient quote by visiting thefyshow.com slash bestow. That's thefyshow.com slash bestow. B-E-S-T-O-W. Bestow. Life insurance made easy. So I am just getting back from my whirlwind of a trip down in South America. I got back on Saturday, so just kind of getting back in the swing of things, getting ready for the holidays, some good food, and some family. And so today's episode is going to be a little bit different. We're not going to have guests. It's just going to be Justin and I chatting, and we're going to dissect 10 pieces of money advice and just give our take on it. Is it right? Is it wrong? Is it somewhere in between? Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Okay, Justin, so the first piece of money advice is carry a credit card balance. True or not true? (laughs) I would never carry a credit card balance. I mean, actually, one of my tips to people is always, A, use credit cards because you get all these reward points. So that's another thing is anyone who tells you don't use a credit card unless you have actual problems with your responsibility, like you can't handle a credit card, absolutely use a credit card. But when you do start using a credit card, I always set mine up to auto pay the full balance. So that way I forget about it. I get sick, whatever. I'm in a coma. My bills are being paid. What about you, Cody? Yeah. So before I give my answer, I know some of my friends and family who I've tried to explain this concept to. So basically what it means to carry a balance, say you put $2,000 in a credit card. If you leave anything over from that $2,000 on the next month, instead of paying it all off in full, that is carrying a balance. Even if you pay $100 down and now it's $1,900, you are carrying a balance, even if you made that payment. So one of the biggest misconceptions is like, oh, if I carry a credit card balance, that's going to help my credit. And that is not right whatsoever. There's nothing about carrying a balance that actually helps your credit score. So credit score is broken down into several different categories. Here's the one that people might be misconceived by is payment history. So yes, you do want to make your payments on time and you never want to have a late payment. But like Justin was saying, that means you can pay your credit card off in full. It is the same exact impact on your credit score. That's payment history. Then all of the other ones, there's available credit, there's length of credit, there's types of credit, there's new credit. None of those are affected whatsoever by you carrying a balance. So that one payment history, which makes up 35% of your credit score is probably where people get that confusion from. But if you're just using those credit cards and paying them off in full, you'll have the same net positive impact to your credit score. And just as a tangible example to wrap this up, I have like six credit cards. 
I've always paid the balance off 100% and I have a great credit score. So like even if you don't understand all the rest of that, there's a tangible example to say, okay, you don't have to have only one credit card and you don't have to carry a balance. Those are not prerequisites to having a good credit score. Okay, so money tip number two here, Justin. Renting is just throwing money away. And we're both renters, so I'd love to hear your take on this. Yeah, I mean, first of all, there's a lot of good calculators out there to show if you're a person who's like a transient person, which I have been, you're moving from city to city, that you need to live in a house for X number of years before that becomes profitable because you have to pay, you know, closing costs, you have to pay the realtor, you have to you know, and then you have those insurance costs and stuff. And it's going to take you some time before like appreciation or whatever it may be, whatever your function of earning money off that house is, is planning on being can catch up to those costs because you got to pay to close on the deal when you buy it. And then you're going to have to pay to close on the deal a lot of times when you go to sell it to put it on the market. So it's going to take you a few years. So if you're moving around a lot, then renting actually may be the proper way to go about it. And I also think people are kind of, I don't know if they're just in the dark or they don't actually track the expenses, but home ownership is super expensive. I know you were just mentioning, Justin, like you have mortgage insurance, you have property taxes, you have homeowners insurance, you have HOA fees, maybe. There are so many different little things that you never think about until you're actually a homeowner. And then you're like, wow, this is way more expensive than I could have possibly thought. Now, the one nuance I will throw in here, yes, if you're just going to buy a single family house for you and your family versus like renting. That might not be, you could definitely use a rent versus buy calculator and see if that's economical for you. But the one awesome thing is house hacking. And I'm sure Justin, you could probably resonate with this is like, if you buy a duplex or buy a triplex and you're using the 1% rule, you're using all these different strategies that we've talked about on the podcast before, then that's probably going to be a more sound investment than just renting. But if you're just, you know, straight up, you have a mortgage, you have no income from that house. It's not an income producing asset to you. Then renting may be the way to go. And if you remember back to our episode with Christy and Bryce from Millennial Revolution, they are like super anti-home buying. I know they were in the Toronto market, houses there are like a million dollars. It made a whole lot more sense to them to get like $1,000 a month in rent because they have all this income coming in from their retirement accounts. And so they just didn't want to be bothered with the burden of homeownership. And I thought that was just an interesting take and someone who's actually doing this and realized that, hey, renting is a much more economical decision for me. And I mean, with all this, you know, me and Cody are both big proponents of real estate. We've got a lot of friends who are getting to financial independence faster than any other way through real estate, but it's in the right markets under the right situations. So what we're trying to say here is that you can't just have this blanket rule that says renting is throwing money away. It is sometimes the more effective way of going if you're in the right market, the right situation. And I mean, these things are even different depending on if you have like a family versus you're going to get roommates to split up the rent. Like there's there's a lot of factors. So don't just sit down and say, absolutely, we cannot rent. And that is just a hard, fast rule. All right, Justin, money tip number three, buy new cars because they'll last longer. What do you think about that? Yeah, so I've got a little bit of a mixed bag history here where most of my life I did really good on car buying. I would buy a car that was about five years old that had, you know, say it's got like 60,000 miles on it, it's hit almost all of its depreciation, then you can keep a car like that for two to three years and sell it for almost exactly what you bought it for. I've done that several times. Then fast forward to when I started making my first like real money, I bought a car that was definitely too new. It was only like a little over a year old, so it still had a lot of depreciation left. And so I haven't turned out as well in that car. So my advice to people would be, Buy car is about five years old. Keep it for two and just keep flipping it like that. Just get it. Make sure you get a good deal on it and then make sure you're not in a situation where you have to sell it fast. So you have plenty of time to sell it. And then every like two to three years, you can literally just kind of churn that and you may lose like a thousand dollars on each car. But if you're talking about 
300 and something bucks a year on depreciation. That is way better than pulling a new car off the lot. And cars today are just built to last for so long. Like I've never had to take my car, any of the cars I've ever owned and have any major fixes. And I've owned cars that are 20 years old. So Justin, before I kind of come in with my thoughts here, I'm hoping maybe we can shed some light on the numbers here. So let's call it a 2014 car. We're recording this the end of 2019. What is the price range you're looking for for that type of car? Yeah. So what I was always looking at is kind of these seven, $8,000 cars that are maybe like 60 to 70,000 miles. And then I would always try to offload them just before I got to a hundred thousand miles. And I would generally, I had a pretty good track record of being able to sell it for exactly what I bought it for, or maybe like a thousand dollars less. So like I bought a 2008 Pontiac G6 one time, kept it for a couple of years, sold it for like 500 less than I bought it for. I bought a 2005 Mustang that was kind of like a specialty Mustang, but bought it for 15, kept it for three years and sold it for 13.5. So those are kind of the sweet spots for me is find a good deal on a car that's 60, 70,000 miles in that kind of seven, $8,000 range, keep it for two to three years and then try to get out of it before you hit 100,000 miles. Because there's some kind of mental thing that people have around that 100,000 mile mark. I don't know why, but that is that is definitely a thing where you're going to sell the car to, if you can get out of it at like 95,000 miles, people just feel so much better about it. So one of the things we'll kind of stick with the same topic, Justin, maybe we can transition it into the next topic I wanted to talk about. But the biggest pushback I hear is that, oh, like if it's a five-year-old car, you know, something's going to go wrong. And when you buy a car off the lot, they're going to cover it for you for the first X number of years. Like it's all set. But one of the negatives of buying a car off the lot is one, the second you drive it off the lot, it loses like 40 or 50% of its value. Two, you're definitely not going to be getting the best deal because you're going to end up financing it. You'll be paying a couple thousand dollars in interest over what you actually quote unquote purchased the car for. There are just so many negatives that outweigh the positives when you buy a car off the lot. Now, some people will say when they go to buy a brand new car that it that it is the financial way to go because they're going to keep it for like 20 years. Now, if you look at the math and everything goes well, that actually may work out pretty similar. But you're sitting there with a 20 year old car, whereas if you'll buy cars that are, you know, four or five years old and then you just keep selling them every two years, then the oldest car you would ever have is maybe seven years old. You'll never have a 20 year old car. You can keep kind of refreshing it without losing hardly any money and it will actually cost you the same, you know, over a very long period of time or maybe even less, but you're getting to keep refreshing that car. Also, a side benefit, psychologically, most of the time when we want to go buy a new car, it's just because we're just a little tired of driving the same thing. It's not necessarily that our old car is bad. We just want to drive something different. So if every two to three years you're going to drive something different, it can kind of reduce that urge to buy a new car. Okay, so this is a perfect transition into number four piece of money advice, and that is there is good debt and bad debt. Justin, what's your first take on that? I mean, I think there absolutely is good and bad debt myself. I mean, if it is debt that you're using to leverage to make yourself a lot more money, like we see a lot of our friends do in the real estate space, then I don't think there's anything wrong with that debt. If you're paying 15% on a credit card because you needed the new iPhone 11, then like, yeah, that's definitely bad debt. So I think there's definitely good and bad debt. Yeah, I think there's like a threshold. I like to use the five or 6% marker. So like going back to that car, I'm not sure. Actually, Justin, when you purchase those cars, are you purchasing them outright or are you financing them? Yeah, always just cash because most of the time to get these good deals on cars, you're going to be buying them from an individual, not a dealership. Just by definition, the dealerships are generally not going to be a good deal because they've got to make money on them and they've bought them from an individual. So it's better to buy from an individual. And when you do that, you're probably not going to have like financing options. 
Yeah. Okay. So like when you're financing, the way I think about it is anything less than 5% is okay. And this is only if with your money, we're going to be talking about this later. One of the other topics with investing, but if you're investing your money, you can assume it's not going to be every single year, but over the long run, you're going to probably be netting like 7% annual return. So I just like to be a little conservative. So like call it anything under five could be classified as good debt if it's for a purchase that's either a like increasing your net worth in some way like buying rental properties or it could be you know maybe you're buying a car we could go back to the car example you could be buying a car to rent it out on Turo which is basically the Airbnb for cars there are definitely some good things you can do with debt but just make sure it's a manageable debt interest rate so you definitely want to be like in the five percent range or less and definitely less with a mortgage no I think that's a good call and I just uh to kind of reinforce what we've said a couple times already is that when you have that good debt, it should be tied to something that is going to help you make you money. So in my mind, even if yes, like that market will outperform that 5% traditionally, I still only want to reserve like allowing myself to do that for an expense that is going to turn and make me money. Like, so I'm leveraging the money. I don't want to be just using it in place of cash just because I'm saying that my cash in the market will make more money. I really still only want to reserve debt for a point of leverage. And so two big debts that, I mean, are just pretty terrible all around. You're never going to have good credit card debt. Like credit card debt is always going to be like 10% plus. You're just going to be throwing money out the window on whatever balance you owe. And another one that's tough, although unless you refinance, student loan debt is usually like 6% plus. If you can find somewhere that can consolidate your student loans or you can refinance for a lower rate, definitely try to do that. Again, the sweet spot for me anyway is like anything 5% or less. All right, Justin. So number five is go to college. What are your thoughts on that? So I think I'll probably actually even have some kind of controversial takes on this. So as far as going to college, I think it is a great option for a lot of people. I don't think it's necessary for everyone. And that part is not controversial, I don't think, and especially not in this space. But I think something that may be controversial is that going to a community college is not always the best answer for saving money. I know this because that's what happened to me. If I would have went to community college, it actually would have cost me a lot more money. And the reason is a lot of scholarships that are like specific to a university can only be given to incoming freshmen. They, you can't get them if you're transferring as a sophomore or junior. So that and then on top of it, like if you do what I did, which is coming in under a high, what they call a high school scholarship for the military. Again, those are only given to those coming in as freshmen. So I literally would have been leaving thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on the table if I would have went to community college. So. This just goes back to some of the other things we've been talking about where it absolutely may be the best thing for you to do. Going to a community college might be the best thing for you to do, but it might not. So like do a little research and don't just hear one person on a podcast say, go to community college and then you just do it blindly. Like look into it a little bit. I think one of the most important things to note, and this is going along with every piece of money advice we're analyzing here, is just like be intentional. There's definitely not a clear cut, cut and dry, black and white answer. It's not just like, yes, go to college or no, don't go to college. When you are going to college, if you decide you want to send your kid to college or you're deciding yourself you want to go to college, look at some of the pros and cons, you know, weigh whether or not it's worth it to pay $50,000 at this private school versus 20000 at this public school. And like Justin was saying, you know, weigh your scholarship and grant options. There are so many little considerations. And then if you're going to college just to like, quote unquote, make money, that's pretty much why I went to college. I wasn't going to become a doctor or I wasn't going to become some super highly specialized field where you definitely should go to college. I do not want to be under the table with a doctor who didn't go to college. But if you're just going in it to like make money, there are so many different ways you can make money by learning your own skills online. You can take all these online courses. 
You can learn all these cool technical skills that people will pay you to do that does not require a college degree. And then, I mean, the trades right now, there's such a shortage of young people in the trades. I have friends who are electricians, plumbers, carpenters making seventy-five, $80,000 a year in their early 20s. Like that's no chump change. So that is definitely an option as well. And as long as you're intentional and you kind of know and understand what you're doing with your money, I don't think there's a wrong or right answer here. Yeah, there's a lot of good little metrics you can look at too. Like think about what your salary should be in that career field versus what your student loan debt might be or what the annual cost of that college might be. And kind of just keep that ratio as positive as possible so that because there's a lot of different options for colleges, there's a lot of different options for majors. And when you kind of matrix that all out, obviously you need to do something that you enjoy, but you know, at the end of the day, you still do need, it is a financial decision. All right, Justin. So money tip number six, put as much money as you can into your savings account. Thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I don't even know if it's necessarily like a tip people are hearing, but it's definitely things that people are doing. I mean, I've had friends who I've got to talking to them about their finances, find out they have like $80,000 in their savings account. And it's like, what are you doing? Like, I don't think people understand a couple of things. Like, first of all, I don't think they understand inflation. So on average, your money is devaluing at like 3% because things are getting more expensive. So, you know, you can look back and think about what something cost in the 70s, 80s and what it costs now. And you can see that if you would have just put that money in a savings account, it would have done nothing versus, I mean, it would actually be worth many multiples of what it was worth then. So inflation is something that you really need to understand that it's it's not that you're just kind of maintaining, you're actually losing money every single year. And then also, you know, I think people have this mindset over the last few years when the market's been doing really good that, you know, they just need another crash to come along and then they'll get in. So they're just kind of sitting on the sidelines. And one thing I get when I do tell people this, I have friends who have tens of thousands of dollars sitting in savings accounts is they're worried that their money is going to lose its value. And while that might be true, like say we move $10,000 from a savings account to an investment account tomorrow and then the market crashes by 50%, highly unlikely, but yes, you will quote unquote lose that value for one day. Over the long run, you're going to wildly outperform that savings account. There's this thing called the rule of 72. And basically what that says is your money is going to double every 10 years. So in that example, like if you had money in the 80s, say you had $10,000 in the 80s. Once you hit 1990, that's $20,000. You hit 2000, that's $40,000. You hit 2010, that's $80,000. 2020, we're just rearing up on you have $160,000 instead of just the same old lump of $10,000 that you had sitting in that savings account from the 80s. So it is super powerful and investing does not have to be this scary thing. You're not going to lose all your money. It's a long game though. So if you're going to buy a house tomorrow, don't throw all your money in your investment account. But if you are saving for retirement and you're thinking about the long term, it is the best possible strategy. Yeah. And just piggybacking on that rule of 72 real quick, because I think it is like a very powerful way to just frame you know your decisions and your thoughts around your decisions is because you, what you do is you take the number 72 and you divide it by the percent of expected return that you'll get so if you expect to get seven percent returns then it will take you about 10 years for that money to double because 72 divided by seven is you know about 10 so you can also think about that if you're saying ah you know i don't want to put my money in that because that's too risky i want to put it in this which maybe gets three percent well okay now divide 72 by three and you realize oh crap it's gonna take me 24 years for my money to double so Keep that in mind, like use that little rule of thumb. And it's also a fun thing to use when you're considering buying something or not. So you can say, well, if I don't buy it, what will my money be worth? What will that money that I didn't spend be worth? And, you know, 8, 16, 20, whatever it is, you know, like down the road versus, you know, if you actually spend it and had that instant gratification now. 
All right, Justin, money tip number seven, you should have a financial advisor. Agree or disagree? Yeah, I mean, I disagree with this one. I think that some people, depending on what situation they're in, may really need like a tax specialist because that stuff can get super complicated. Like our, there's nothing we can do about that. Like the IRS stuff is, it's complicated. I mean, you can try to teach yourself as, as much as you want, but you know, if you have a lot of different properties, like commercial, residential, a lot of different kind of investments, you know, inheritance stuff going on, like you may need a tax specialist. But as far as a financial advisor, you know, if your finance, if your investments are that complicated, then you may be doing something wrong. Like that might be a flag that says, hey, you know, I'm I'm trying to do all these weird like day trading kind of things and I feel like I need somebody to help me. Well, then maybe you're just investing the wrong way. So I think I'm on the boat with most people in this community where it's, you know, we're going to invest in the total market. We're going to keep our fees really low and just play the long game. And when you look at some of those calculators that are out there, Having a difference in paying that 1% management fee versus paying like a 0.03% to Vanguard or nothing at Fidelity, like it actually does make a big difference when you go to compounding. Yeah, Justin, I know Personal Capital, which we both use to track our net worth and expenses, they have a fee analyzer, actually. So if you have an account with them, we'll put a link in the show notes. You guys can sign up. You can see like what the difference is in, say, 40 years from now, if you're paying 1.5% versus 0.05% or whatever you want to do, you can kind of mix and match. I totally agree with you, Justin, that I think what people really don't need is like an investment advisor that just tells them exactly what to invest in and what not to. Someone who, again, like who has complicated taxes or maybe they're taking over a family's estate or they just have all these complicated financial things going on that are outside the realm of just like investing, then it might be okay to get like some kind of financial advisor who's more looking at a holistic picture, not just saying, buy this stock, don't buy this stock, I'll actively manage this for you. I think that is totally the wrong way to go. And so like a lot of friends and family, when I tell them about this, they're like, oh, I don't want to sit and read through financial statements and I don't want to, you know, do all this research on stocks. And it really doesn't have to be that difficult. And I know a lot of people listening are like, duh, but some people are really turned off by the idea of looking for a quote unquote investment or like what stock is going to perform well this year. And like Justin said, like I only have my investments in a handful of these what are called index funds where I have a little piece of say all the 3000 companies in the US, I own just one share. And so if the whole market goes up, I make money, which it tends to do over the long run. And you know, if the market goes down a little bit, then my money goes down. It's as simple as that. So if one company goes bankrupt out of those 3000 that are in my index fund or in my mutual fund, I'm not losing a bunch of money. It's like a super safe way to just be involved in the market and invest your money. Yeah. And just to wrap this up, I think that So two things. One, I think that a lot of times the reason people actually end up wanting a financial advisor is more of this scapegoat thing. Like they want to not have to feel bad if they screw it up. Like they feel like there's this pressure where they're going to screw it up. Whereas if they give it to somebody else and it screws up, it's like, well, at least I tried. I gave my best effort. But in reality, like neither you nor that person can affect the market. So, you know, that kind of squashes that idea. The second thing, this is just kind of like a bonus tip to investing and, you know, these index funds and things like that. A lot of people work for companies where they're either going to get like equity of the company, like a sign-on bonus and stock that they're going to get that's going to vest over a certain period of time, or they're going to have access to this like employee stock purchase plan where they get to buy stock from of their company at a discounted rate. Those are both like awesome tools, but my advice would be to as soon as those mature and where you can offload them to like get out of them immediately because it's awesome to be able to buy stock at like a 15% discount, but if you've got... 10% of your portfolio in this one stock, like you're really over leveraged in that area. So as soon as those mature invest, like just get out of those. So it's a great tool to get there, but don't sit on them. 
Awesome. Love that. And so if you're considering investing at all, there are a ton of good tutorials online. Definitely go check those out. You will thank us 40 years from now. Okay. So number eight, you should buy a whole life policy because it's a good investment. What are your thoughts on this, Justin? Yeah. So I would say like, first of all, like even if you don't trust what like me, Cody says, or like, you know, whatever you want to look at, I don't know a single person in the financial independence space that I trust who would recommend getting a whole life insurance policy. And that's almost enough for me. Like there's that many people <laughs> who have done the research, looked into it, done the math. And what it basically comes down to is you're mixing wealth building with insurance. And one of those is for you and one of those is not for you. And you're mixing the two. So insurance is not for you. Like life insurance is not for you. That is for dependents and loved ones that you're leaving behind as a way to fill in for the income that they expected you to bring to the table. Whereas the investments are a way for you to build your own wealth so that you someday can then retire. Those two things, when you mix them together, you just end up losing efficiencies. The other thing is the reason why those people who are trying to sell them to you are like so good at selling and are they seem so passionate about it is because most of those policies, when a salesman makes that sale to you on a whole life policy, they actually get a royalty on that policy for as long as you're alive. So you've just given them like a little mini pension plan every time you buy one of those. So they're super lucrative to the salesman and they love to sell them. And so devil's advocate here, one of the biggest things I hear is, oh, like, what if I die early? And like, okay, if I, let's say you have a 20 year term policy and then you die on the 21st year. So you get nothing, nothing is paid out to your dependents or your spouse or anyone. Whereas with the whole life, yes, they would pay it out. So this is just basically a game of statistics. Now, the thing that's most wrong with these whole life policies is the first few years, you're paying like the craziest load fees. You're paying all these like quote unquote setup fees, insane charges. It's like multiples the price of a term life policy. So if you do the math, you can mix the math any way you want. Term life is going to be the better investment. Now, let me caveat this with saying, this is before you buy your policy. So if you're like 10 years into a whole life policy and you've already kind of ate a bunch of those terrible costs, unfortunately, that might be the best option is to stick with that whole life policy instead of switching to a term because there's all these like surrender charges. It's honestly like just a terrible product. I hate whole life insurance because they just trap you and you have to pay so many fees to get out of it, so many fees to change your policy. But yeah, like Justin said, term life insurance is, it's a safeguard. It's if you pass away, you can have your children, you can have your spouse kind of have a chunk of money where you would have probably given them that money or you would have been making that money over X number of years, just all at once. And so I've heard some people say, you know, aim to your kids are 25 years old. Cause then after that, hopefully they're on their own, they're making their own money. So if you have a five-year-old right now, you don't have a policy set up, maybe get a 20 year term policy, or you get a 30 year if you're a little more conservative. There are a bunch of ways to do this. Just make sure you do your research and definitely don't get sold a whole life policy when you don't need one. And if you're really interested in this topic and you want to hear a little more from a insurance specialist, we can, we'll put a link to the episode with Sa'el, who we had a great interview with, who went over all the different options for life insurance because there's even like a third option where it's like a return of premium. So it's kind of like a term mixed with a whole life. So there's actually even more options out there, but we'll put a link to that episode so you can hear all that in detail. And I know we gave him a shout out at the beginning, but you can also definitely check out our sponsor, Bestow. We'll also have a link to them in the show notes and they only deal with term life. Obviously, we're not supporting garbage companies that are taking a bunch of fees away from you. So you can definitely check that out if you want to get your policy set up. All right, money tip number nine. So you guys won't be able to see, but we have some infographics here. And basically it's just like rules of thumb telling you how much money you should save at what age and all these different generalities. So Justin, what are your initial thoughts? 
Yeah, so this is one that I was like pretty adamant about putting on this list because I hate these things so much. So when you get all these like clickbait articles about this is the exact amount you should have in your 401k balance at, you know, at each age and it's some chart that has no context behind it. It has no idea what you're spending, how many people you're supporting, what you want your lifestyle to be. Like there's no context there. So, you know, I think there are some like decent rules of thumb that just help you kind of do some quick, dirty math. Like if you're in real estate and you're doing the 1% rule, or if you're looking at your investments and you're doing that rule of 72. But when you're trying to tell somebody like, this is the percent of your budget that should be spent on housing. And this is the percent that you should be spent on investing. To me, what it ends up doing is actually like enabling and handcuffing people. So what I mean by that is it's enabling people to like, yes, it says I only have to put 15% into a retirement account. So that's I'm doing that. So I'm good. I can spend all the rest of my money wherever I want to. Or it's handcuffing them in the fact of not saving as much as they could. So they're like, well, it says to only save 15%. I've already saved that. So there's no point in me saving more because I'm doing this thing. This is what the internet says is good. Where in reality, to me, you should kind of like invert it and look at it as a, okay, these are all the things I need to be happy. I take care of those. And then I just invest the rest. I save all the rest. I don't think about, well, as soon as I save 15%, then I'll just start doing whatever I want to with the rest of the money. Like, I think you should kind of invert your thoughts a little bit there. And I think that's one of the biggest turnoffs for people who are not in this financial independence space. I've seen some like vicious back and forths when you see these mainstream articles talking about things like this. I remember there was one, it was like, you should have $125,000 saved by the time you're 30. And people who are not in this space, who are not used to hearing about people with these types of stories are like, that's impossible. That's crazy. And it's almost unmotivating to them. They're like, why even bother if I'm so far behind the rest of the pack? Because they're not talking to other people about money. We're the only weirdos talking about money here. But then you see people from the financial independence space, unfortunately, who are going in there and like, oh, I have five times that saved. And it's just like, (laughs) it creates this riff and it's really hard to bridge those two groups together when you're just using these broad generalities. Because there's so many different careers, so many different fields, so many different backgrounds. Of course, a doctor is not going to have 125 grand saved at 30. They haven't even started working yet. Or someone who started in the trades and they've been saving crazily since 18, maybe they're going to be way over that marker. There's just like so many nuances. And you're right, Justin, these infographics just suck. And it makes people not even want to chase after those goals. Yeah. And it's kind of like a, a little bit of a side topic that's got that same mental feel is is actually like budgeting versus tracking your spending. So to me, these infographics tie more like a traditional look at budgeting where it says, okay, I have this much money I can spend on gas every month, this much money I can spend on travel, this much money I can spend on, you know, et cetera. And what that allows people to do is they're going to spend exactly that, at least like they're going to go up to that number because they've already told themselves that that's what they're that's what they're given. That's what they're allowed versus like tracking your money, which to me is actually a lot more powerful is just to get a really good view of where you're spending money and then to start like setting those priorities. Like I want to reduce this area so that I can increase this area and not put these like hard numbers on there to say, you know what, this says I get $200 to go eat out. I don't even really need to go eat out anymore, but I still got 50 bucks left in that envelope. So let's go spend it. You know, it just gives you a reason to go spend the money if you haven't already spent it. All right, Justin. So to wrap this thing up, money tip number 10, increase your income and decrease your expenses as much as possible. What do you think? Like, obviously, those two things would be amazing if at the same time you can be happy and you can be and you can have time for your family and for your loved ones. But generally, that's not true. So when people get uber obsessed with either one of those sides, and especially once they get uber obsessed with both, they can tend to like alienate those around them. They can become so stressed about it. Anytime they actually do want to spend a little money, they can feel 
terrible about themselves when they make a misstep, like, you know, they act like it's the end of the world. I think it's just really important to take a step back and realize you're doing awesome. Like by even attempting to go down this path, like you are doing awesome. Like you're being so much more thoughtful and intentional with your money that a lot of people out there are not doing. So you're already crushing it. Just like calm down a little bit, like do the best you can, but don't run yourself into the ground. A way I like to think about it is like, just knock the easy wins out. And then if you want to go for some of the bonuses, that's totally fine. Like if you want to pick up one side hustle, that's not killing you, go do that. But like, just make sure you have the easy wins out of the way. Get your housing, get your transportation, get your food as cheap as possible. Crush it in your career or start a side hustle, whatever it might be. As long as it fits within the time you have in the day, you have time to spend with your family, with your loved ones to do fun things. Like if I were to just be as cheap as possible, I would just miss out. I would never hang out with my friends on the weekends when they go out to the bar. And that's not the life I want at all. Like I'm more than happy to go drop, you know, 20 to $30 at the bar hanging out with my buddies on a weekend than sit inside just because I don't want to spend my money and work on a side hustle or something. There has to be some kind of balance. And so we're not telling you to one, stay in your house and never spend any money, but also two, you don't want to go spend all your money on these quote unquote fun things. There is definitely a balance to be struck. So you do, yes, want to maximize that gap between your income and your expenses as much as possible, but within the confines of your happiness and within the confines of reasonability. Yeah. And there's also, I think, you know, it's worth talking a little bit about like efficiency of how you're doing those. So is it worth like attacking all these little $1 expenses and just, you know, being so meticulous about it? Or is it better to just go and like find a cheaper place to rent? That's kind of on the saving side. Same thing with the income. Like, is it better to try to take on like 10 Uber shifts a week? Or would it be in, say you're like some project manager at a you know, kind of like some old school company and you realize, you know what, I could be a project manager at a tech company and get paid twice as much. Like same type of employment, just com- but completely different industries could be a game changer for you. And so it's kind of thinking that strategic level too. There's there's some things that, that really move the needle that are simple, just, you know, one big thing versus doing a thousand little things. I mean, you know, it all adds up, but it's important to kind of take a step back and make sure that you're getting those easy wins. Well, Justin, that is a wrap for the 10 pieces of money advice we wanted to dissect and give our own little take on. And for all of you listeners, happy holidays. Tomorrow is Christmas. If you're celebrating Christmas, I know we're in the middle of Hanukkah right now. Kwanzaa is on Thursday if you're celebrating that. I don't know if there's any other holidays I'm missing, but happy holidays to you if you're celebrating something else. And I guess that takes us out of here. Cody, I have to say that I really enjoyed this episode. I mean, as much as I love our guests, this was fun to kind of get in there and let the audience hear a little bit about what we think about some of these topics. What do you think about this episode? Yeah, no, it was really fun. Kind of a lot of times we're taking the back seat. We like giving the guests the spotlight here in their story, but being able to share some of our thoughts and some of our opinions that sometimes we don't get to just because of the constraints of time was a lot of fun. And hopefully people got some value out of this episode, even if it was one or two money tip that Justin and I made you feel a little bit differently about, or even better, you sent this episode to a friend or family member who's struggling with some of these concepts and say, hey, listen here, this is Cody and Justin, they have this podcast, and this is why you shouldn't carry a balance on your credit card, or this is why you shouldn't buy a new car. So hopefully we did some helping out, and that's our holiday gift this season. Yeah, and I mean, for those listening, what you may not understand is that when me and Cody make these episodes, There are some of you out there who are just starting out on your financial independence journey, and you kind of want to hear some of these tips that some would kind of think of as a little more like novice or beginner. And that's awesome because you got to have that foundation. And then some listeners want to hear, you know, these really expert things from these really interesting guests. And so we're always trying to balance that. And so this episode today was hopefully to give a little more of a broad brush of some of these foundational topics because 
sometimes, you know, when we have guests on, they have these like amazing stories, but unfortunately, like some people either can't relate to, or it's like a little bit of like that PhD level information. And so we really hope you enjoyed this episode today with some of these more foundational topics. All right, Justin, I got to know, just because I'm curious, what is your favorite Christmas food? Okay, Cody. So this one is going to sound a little weird unless you're probably from the small pocket of Mississippi. But for every year for Christmas, we do a big breakfast. And as part of that breakfast, we do what is called chocolate gravy. So chocolate gravy is actually very similar to the ingredients you'd use to make like the inside of a chocolate pie. But it is, it's it's like a hot gravy consistency and you just pour it over like biscuits. And actually, I never thought of it, but my girlfriend had like the best kind of way to frame it. When you put this stuff on a biscuit, it kind of tastes like you're eating a chocolate chip waffle. So it can sound nasty because people think about chocolate and gravy, but it is delicious. You ever come down to Mississippi, we'll definitely make you some. Hey, I came down to Mississippi, Justin, and I did not get chocolate gravy. (laughs) (laughs) Next time. I'm a big stuffing guy myself, but yeah, just thought that would be an interesting thing to throw in here because I know chocolate gravy has been a staple of your diet for the last almost 30 years. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, what about the elves? I mean, whoa, what was that, Justin? It's the call to action, Cody. And the call to action this week, I think, goes in perfectly. It's kind of this idea of giving. You know, it's Christmas time. We need to give some gifts. So if there's someone you know who may be struggling with one of these topics or they're on the fence about one of these tips, I think a great call to action this week would be to take and share this episode or like a specific clip with someone near to you who is struggling a little bit with some financial information. They need a little help. Like point them to this episode. And if you have a different resource, definitely point them to that. Like just try to dispel some of the myths out there and some of the bad money practices that those around you may be participating in. Love it, Justin. I'm pretty sure the net impact of solid financial advice is going to go a lot farther than the $50 check from grandma. So that is definitely a great gift you can give someone. And if you want to kind of dig into any of the money tips we talked about today, and read the detailed summary, you can do that at thefiveshow.com slash 10 tips. So that is the number 10, one zero tips slash 10 tips. And if you want to join in on one of the funnest, most festive personal finance communities on the internet, you can do that at thefiveshow.com slash community. And if you guys are feeling super generous during this holiday time, please hit us with that five-star rating and review. It would really warm both me and Justin's hearts and keep this train rolling. Thanks for listening. See you on next week's episode of The Fi Show.